This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is the mediator's approach. Our guest is Tara West. Tara is the author of the mediator's approach, Five and a Half Paths Through Conflict, and co-author of Self-Determination in Mediation, The Art and Science of Mirrors and Lights. She's a certified transformative mediator and conflict coach who's been trained in facilitative, evaluative, understanding-based and transformative approaches to mediation. Tara has taught and developed undergraduate and graduate psychology courses covering such topics as sociocultural approaches to psychology, development psychology, personality psychology, group processes, and the psychology of conflict resolution. Tara earned her PhD in social and health psychology from Stony Brook University and her JD from New York University School of Law. Tara, very welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. So we are going to discuss your book, which I have to say every mediator should know about the different approaches to mediation. So that'll be the topic here. So this episode will be of particular interest to professional mediators who are currently have an established practice or budding uh, mediators or anybody else that is listening in that's involved in any way as part of the, the conflict resolution process. So. I know from my experience, I wish I had read this. I did my master's in mediation and that was over two years. And you have put this into one little book that took me two years to find out all the various different approaches. Every time I did a module, I found some a different approach or a different way. So this is such a useful resource for everybody out there. So I have to say congratulations on that. Well done. Thank you. Thanks. And especially when I go to mediation and I approach mediation um, and as I've learned, there's different ways to approach mediation. And I think that's the common thing is sometimes people may not understand that mediation is a broad church of mm-hmm. approaches and philosophies and theories. You know, um, so when you're a, a mediator first, you're trying to get to grips with the mediation process. You're trying to get confident. But then as you approach each mediation, you're kind of going, hold on here. I need to change my approach here. Isn't that correct? Now, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, I kind of, I tried different approaches and recognized that sometimes they seem to work pretty well and sometimes they didn't. It depended on what I meant by worked, you know, it either it felt good to me or it didn't feel good to me. It's part of what I, I realized was happening. So a lot of people will say you should use different approaches for different cases, but I'm, I'm kind of a purist in terms of, uh, I believe transformative mediation could be used for all different cases. Yeah. And I, I like the way that you compare and contrast the styles and the, the start of your book, I have to say, is it okay if I read this out for our audience? I had a love-hate relationship with mediation. At times, I felt like mediation could save the world. It satisfied my inner peacemaker's desire to bring people together in spirit of understanding and cooperation, allowing them to find win-win solutions while improving their relationships. At other times, I thought it was a scam. It violated my inner lawyer's desire for justice as it seemed to remove the protections and oversight of legal precedent that took years to develop, allowing unscrupulous people to achieve one-sided victories. Eventually, I concluded that mediation could be all of this and more depending on the parties, the situation, and perhaps most importantly, the mediator's approach 
their chosen path through conflict. When I picked that up, I says, oh, my, that is the essence of it, isn't it? As the purest approach. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people have resonated with that, that they experienced that, too. This feeling like mediation was this wonderful thing that felt so great and was so helpful. And then other times feeling like it was just a, a place where bullying could happen or injustices could happen. So, yeah, I think a lot of people have had that experience. And what's wonderful is, is you have studied in all of these. And I think the more that you study mediation, the more you kind of go, well, actually, this is the style that I feel or the approach I feel comfortable with or how I will adapt to the situation. And I think there's a really strong message in that is for everybody to educate themselves in the different approaches and actually what might work best for me? Would you agree with that statement or expand on it? Well, I definitely think if you don't feel comfortable with what you're doing, you're not going to be helpful. So I think it's helpful to really um, explore what the different options are um, rather than just yeah fall into the first one you were trained in or the one you happen to know somebody else <laughs> was doing. I think you can believe that one is good for you at first. And then you it's only when you experience maybe some of the drawbacks of it in different cases when you see, oh, this isn't working very well here. Maybe I need to rethink this. It's the availability bias. It's it's what's available to us that we know, oh, my friend, this or the people in my circle do this, where actually the more that we listen to podcasts or read books like we're doing right now or write books to educate people, it really says, OK, there's a whole broad school of this church of this that we, we do. And there are many definitions of mediation. So on that point, then, how would you define mediation? That's a trick question. <laughs> there are different definitions of mediation. So um, I think at the broadest, it is there's a person in the room who is neutral, relatively neutral. That's even another question. Um, and trying to help people have a conversation. Yeah. So a lot of people will define mediation as we're trying to help people get to an agreement, but not all mediators will necessarily have that as their goal that they're focusing on. So that's why I say the broadest is just, I think everyone can agree. We're trying to help people have a conversation, make choices in that conversation. You're talking about the four mediation goals, isn't it? It's reaching an agreement, a high quality one at that, a high quality outcome and a high quality process. Th those are the goals that you speak about in, in your book. Here's what I'd like to do, if that's okay, is I'd like to go through, you say there's five and a half paths uh, through conflict. And what I'd like to do is go through all the mediation approaches, if that's okay, and give us a, a whirlwind tour of these. And then if I'm listening to this podcast and kind of going, oh, that's the approach I use, or, oh, that might be something that I'd like to explore a little bit more. And now I have a name for it. So I think this will be great for our listeners then is to do a quick um, whirlwind of this. You've named a five and a half approaches can you tell our listeners why you chose a half an approach? The evaluative approach is one that when I was having conversations with a friend and colleague who's also a mediator, he was using the term evaluative in a way that suggested um, the mediator was trying to get parties to an agreement very forcefully, directively, pushing, pulling them there. And I had been using the term evaluative in kind of the opposite way. Um, I was thinking of it as someone who's evaluating the overall agreement. Is it good? Is it just? Is the process that they're using to have a conversation fair? One person controlling the other. So I just saw that as very different approaches that they they overlap and that they do evaluate, but they just evaluate different things for different reasons. And it's nearly like there's a spectrum there as well, isn't it? In the approach directive versus actually, am I sense checking? Is this fair for, am I checking for power and balance? Or can, can I just ask with the evaluative approach, who, who might use that? Yeah, well, one thing I, I want to go back to, if you don't mind, is that they're actually, I think both ends of that spectrum are directive. So they're just directing in different ways towards different ends. So whereas other mediation approaches might be not directive at all. So it's directing towards an agreement versus towards a fair agreement, which might be away from an agreement. Yes. That's how I would uh, think of it. Like retired judges are the most drawn to it 
on mm-hmm. either end of it, because like, they're used to using legal precedent as a touchstone. And so um, that's especially in the one that I call judges, you know, they're like, is this fair? Is this right? And then in the other, the deal maker one, uh, they're also used to sometimes putting pressure on parties, you know, pretrial conferences or whatever are often about pressuring them. We don't want to take up court's time. So let's just get this done. Yeah. So I could see them being drawn to either either side of that. And, and that's what I've noticed in commercial mediation. So between businesses, it's usually that deal maker there to say, listen, you do realize that if this goes to court, this is how much it's going to cost you. So we need to make a deal here. So this is the, and they do a lot of negotiation tactics. That's that's why I really like the way you put a deal maker. This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. There's an interest in them for, for them, isn't it? There's nearly like an agenda for the deal maker, isn't it? Yeah, well, sometimes they'll say that the their client is the deal. So they are, yeah, very concerned with their own, I think, success rates to some degree, um, maybe keeping the other lawyers happy to the extent the lawyers want the case to settle. It's more efficient for them. I should say it could also be, in their mind, good for the parties, that the parties are getting through things and getting, you know, saving money, saving time. But it doesn't seem to be as concerned with the parties actually getting their needs met. Yeah. About just getting it over with. Yeah. And and this is something we're going to talk about later on because we have the four principles of mediation that it's voluntary, confidential, self-determination and impartial. And sometimes when you're in the evaluation um, mediation approach, that deal breaker approach, if you're very directive, well, is it really voluntary? You know, and, you know, you mentioned in your book, like what information has been shared or not shared, you know, so it's very much a caucus approach, isn't it? Where um, that can sometimes happen where the parties may never meet. Right, right. And they may have their, what they're saying kind of distorted when it's uh, communicated to the other, other side and they're not necessarily getting the full information. And some mediators will come right out and say, yeah, it's it's actually ethical to lie because that's what gets them to the deal. So that's a hard one for me to swallow. I, I I would not be comfortable with that approach as well because it goes against that principle of self-determination, which I know you have a book. I cannot wait to read on, uh, on that whole principle of self-determination. We'll talk about that towards the end of the podcast. And I think from an ethical point of view, this may not be used so much in Ireland due to how our legislation is written. To be very directive in Ireland is, isn't a style, even though it is sometimes taken. Ethics play a massive part in that uh, evaluative approach, doesn't it? Or, or, or lack of sometimes. Right. And so I don't know about what the Ireland um, guidelines say, uh, but like each state, you know, in the US can have their own definition of mediation and their own guidelines. So it does come down to, I think, um, I mean, we're all shaped by what's going on around us, but our own ethic, our own sense of what we're comfortable with. Yeah. And we've had people in the Mediation Foundation of Ireland who are training from parts of America. And when we teach them about the different styles, then they're coming from the uh, evaluative approach and they're kind of going, oh, this performative piece is brilliant. What's What's going on here? You know, hmm. and, and it's a great insight. So it it all depends on, it's a bit like what you've had access to, isn't it? And what's your first experience of primacy effect? What's your first experience of mediation? Then you think, oh, I know what mediation is, but actually how, how deep are you going with, with your approach to mediation? Uh, excellent. And what are the, the, I suppose, benefits and pitfalls then to that evaluative approach, you know, if we were kind of saying, listen, I'm, I'm thinking of steering towards this or actually I'm, I'm actually going to steer away from it. What are the, the pros and cons? Yeah, it's really hard for me to point out pros of it. I, um, well, it depends on exactly. Are we talking about the deal maker? Um, yeah, because that one, to the extent it's at the extremes of pushing yeah. important people, um, I don't see that as supporting self-determination. 
And I have, you know, in terms of like in the moment, are people making their own choices? It seems like they're being prevented from making their own choices. And sometimes it does even become like really questionably voluntary in that I have heard of mediators putting pressure on people to like not leave the room. Like if you, if you leave here without a deal, like I'm going to tell the court that you weren't being cooperative. So that's coercion, right? Um, so at that extreme, it's, you know, I'd really have to be uh, working really hard to find something good about it, except to say that to the extent the conflict, you know, is resolved, sometimes that itself can feel good. Um, but having an agreement doesn't always mean the conflict is resolved. So, <laughs> uh, so I don't know that that form of mediation really does resolve conflict. It can actually probably create even more internal conflict if you felt like you were bullied and um, not treated fairly or you didn't feel like you were being your best. Uh, so the pitfalls are, yeah, that you could end up pushing people into some sort of you know written legal document that they don't feel was voluntary, that doesn't actually work for them, that even if it did work, their feelings of frustration about having been pushed into it can make them want to sabotage it <laughs> and um, and then go to have, a, have another, you know, appeal it or something or just sabotage it by not, yeah, just I'm not going to fully comply. So I see that, yeah, as a problem. Whereas I think most people that are evaluative are more in the uh, middle or they're a little, you know, they're they're using evaluations in a way to accurately and honestly help people see, you know, the weaknesses of their case, because there always are them, um, or what they think a judge would say, because that could be useful information to people. Um, while also keeping an eye on, you know, is is this is this fair? Are people being treated the way they should be? So I think that intention is good. It doesn't always end up leading to the best results. And, and sometimes it could be used in a very practical sense. So could it be used sometimes for family mediation where you're trying to sort out logistics and, and finances and saying, actually, is this that evaluative approach could be taken there? Yeah. I mean, that is what I was doing pretty much. It was sort of a combination of facilitative and evaluative in the context of families and thinking, well, they they're coming to me because they don't know what the laws are. They don't know what the tax implications are of these different options. So sort of playing that role. Um, I definitely had more of the, the judge side of it, of, you know, wanting it to be fair, but um, there was also the assumption that, yeah, once they knew what the standard, the, you know, child support standard said, they probably end up doing something like that. Mm. Um, so that is, yeah, definitely a context where that happens. And you mentioned that facilitative um, approach then. So can you tell me, and to our listeners, how would you best describe the, the, the facilitative approach? So at its purest, it, they wouldn't be concerned with what the outcome is in terms of what the agreement looks like. They are assuming that when people are um, having cooperative, problem-solving conversations, they're being encouraged to expand the pie, to look at what their interests or needs are below the positions they come in saying they want, um, that when they do all that, then they're going to come to um, decisions that are good for them. And so they're focused mainly on that part of helping people have a good conversation, but in a way that's, I would say, a little more directive than some other approaches that also want to help people have a good conversation. But this way, it's like, we're going to tell you how to have a good conversation. Let's ask you now, let's talk about our interests. Let's brainstorm solutions. Um, so kind of directing the conversation rather than directing the agreement. And this is where reframing comes in, isn't it? Where you, you you will neutralize the content of the message. So at least what the intent of the message is that your needs and interests are heard without any distraction or emotional reaction. Yeah, I think they do. That is um, a way of trying to, you know, focus the conversation in on, okay, the, the future, what are you wanting? Um, what will it do for you? Reframing can be also trying to control the emotional aspect, but by just kind of removing it. We're not going to maybe head on address it, but just, I'm just going to take that emotional aspect out and focus on, you know, turn your um, statement around to what you want in the future and remove the hostility or 
the you know snide remark you just made about the other person. If I'm listening in here, I'm going to go. Okay, where where what are the examples or the applications for this then in in, in a real life scenario? Facilitative mediation is the one that most most mediators who label their approach anything label it facilitative. Mm. So they might not always be doing it the same way, but I would imagine that shows up in all sorts of cases. I mean, when I was first trained as a divorce mediator, they like referred to themselves as facilitative at the time, but there was definitely the evaluative aspect. This is what's tricky about it is because not everyone agrees about what is facilitative, what is evaluative. I guess I would say maybe more community mediations, places where there's probably a little bit less of a, a need for the legal information or that's a little less relevant. Um, it may be more purely facilitative, especially with like volunteer mediators where they're not well-versed in like the law and they're not even, you know, really supposed to talk about it. So. Okay. And and th- this leads us then to where your passion is, is transformative mediation, isn't it? I would veer from facilitative to, to transformative. Um, and I, I think it's it's such a, a wonderful approach. So what's the main difference here between transformative and facilitative? So something I recently came to that I didn't put in the book, but it was a new way of kind of distinguishing the approaches. I, I separated them by saying that, okay, I think everyone agrees there's an emotional aspect to conflict um, and that that emotional aspect can lead to people having a hard time having good conversations. So having a hard time problem solving, having a hard time cooperating, collaborating. Difficulty with that is what will lead to them having no agreement or a bad agreement. And so I would say facilitative is focusing right there more in the middle of like, okay, how do we directly try to get them to have a good conversation? And the transformative approach is focusing at what I would call like the top level of the emotional experience itself of looking at, um, okay, what is really going on for people? And one thing that we believe as transformative mediators is that a main um, experience in conflict is feeling disempowered, feeling like I can't make choices. I don't know how to make choices right now. I'm feeling hopeless. I just, um, this whole situation is overwhelming. Somebody's, you know, this other person is messing with me. And so that kind of experience, we believe that the, the antidote to that, that experience is supporting them and making their own choices. Yeah. We would not direct them in any way. So we wouldn't direct them to talk about a particular topic or to talk about it in a particular way. We wouldn't reframe. We would assume that um, that actually we might go out of our way to reflect the hostility, the intense, what we call, we say we're going to the heat. Yeah. Whereas a facilitative mediator, we're like, okay, we're going to try to avoid, we're going to, you know, quash down that heat. We're going to be like, we're going to reflect that heat so people can see it. Oh, that's where I am. Yeah, I did say that thing. Um, What does that mean? Is that what I meant to say? Should I say something else? But now I get to make choices about it. You know, it's, it's, it was already in the room, but now we're putting it back there in a way that allows people to see it and make their own conscious choices about it. So throughout the entire process, we are generally just reflecting what we're hearing them say, you know, summarizing the conversation, all of that trying to be as accurate as possible so they can just see clearly, mm-hmm. here's where we are. Here's what we said. We did make these choices. Now what are we going to do? Yeah. That's a long answer. And I suppose there's there's no short answers when it comes to conflict, is there? Um, and I think it is that path that we have to go through. And something... Um, I often find that works for me is that you name the emotion word for word. You said you're really hurt and you're really frustrated. And what I might do then is reframe the need. So for example, it is important for you to feel hurt, Mm -hmm. you know, and this will prevent you from being frustrated and hurt. And instead of reemphasizing the ignored piece of sometimes people get stuck. I often find a little reframe here. Once you're naming the emotion, it kind of helps the party really understand what the other person is trying to communicate to them. So, and this is the whole thing with mediation, isn't it? Is, is sometimes just people can't hear when they're in conflict. 
they're so stuck in their in their position. So what are the main goals then when it comes to transformative mediation? Why do you take this approach? Because it is it is different and it's more long lasting, isn't it? It's, it's a very sustainable approach, if you want to call it that. That's the idea is that they are experiencing a transformation by being in that by having the experience of being supported and being able to rise to the occasion of being their best self, um, to be able to take care of themselves without harming others, which we assume is what people really want. All of us deep down, you know, want that, even if it doesn't always look like it. So I, it does seem to have more lasting effects. Yeah. And it moves people from that vicious circle to that virtuous circle. So it empower. it's very empowering, isn't it? This approach is actually, okay, so so next time, what will happen? So when the agreement happens, it's, it is future focused to say, actually, what what is the behavior we're going to take or what is, what is the approach that's going to work best for us if this should arise again? If they choose. If they choose, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wouldn't even ask the question of, you know, what would you do? What are you going to do in the future? But they themselves, I think, will just have the experience of success and handle things differently in the future. This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. Okay, so understanding-based mediation then is our next one. Okay, so how is this then different once more? Right. So that I would call that a specific example of a facilitative kind of approach. So uh, or problem solving, depending on how you label it, it's more specific in that it's a model so that there's a there's very clear, clearly defined, like exactly how they reflect. So even though I just said it's a kind of an example, one version of a facilitative, it if I wanted to differentiate it from facilitative, I might say, that a facilitative mediator would be might be more likely to direct the conversation to a particular topic or away from like maybe away from the past. Whereas the understanding based, they believe that understanding is the is the key. <laughs> you you wouldn't guess that from the name. And it could be understanding anything that's relevant to the parties. So if the parties want to talk about the past, the mediator won't move them away from that. So that's I'd say one difference between what, you know, facilitative, if I wanted to differentiate them, but a lot of people who use the term facilitative also do basically what the understanding-based mediator does. So that's what's a little bit, it's just such a broad umbrella facilitative that um, it could include a lot of overlap. Another way to differentiate is that the understanding-based has a judge component to it. So the evaluative judge, um, they see it as their role to ensure that both voices are in the room and that they are considering all of the information they need to consider, including legal information, um, and that the agreement uh, reflects both parties or all parties' interests. So everyone's important needs are being met. And they're very transparent about that, about this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it, this is why. Um, Whereas I think facilitative might some of them might do some of those things without overtly saying why. Um, it's, they might not have been trained that they're even necessarily supposed to. It's just kind of like um, a little bit more, you're finding your own path with that and kind of experimenting. Whereas the understanding based, you have a, you know, the, the book by Jack Kimmelstein and Gary Friedman um, kind of laying out, here's how we do it and why. So they can have a kind of a solid grounding in what you're doing. And that's the thing with, with mediation. If it is to be masterful, there is something to be said that you're very intentional with your approach, that you are choosing an intervention or choosing a sentence to say with, with clear intention to say, this is what my, my, my approach is here. Isn't there something a lot to be said for that? Yeah, I think knowing why you're doing what you're doing is really important. And even if you don't maybe know in the moment to later look back at what you did, think about why did I do that? What were my other options at that moment? Is the key to really be good at it. And that's where I suppose a lot of people don't 
do enough of is that reflective practice, you know, and I, I'm part of a sharing learning group and and um, I have a supervisor as well. And I think this is really important then as well as say, OK, what worked and what were the other options available to me there? And and what was my intentions behind that? And I think the more you do that, the more that you're in the moment then to say, OK, this this is technically what I'm doing. And there's a technical piece here that you refer to is a key uh practice uh, in understand processes reflection and then as part of that there's a four-step process termed looping so i'd never come across this term i was going oh this is wonderful could you could you quickly go through the steps of looping first please right right so um so that is yeah their way of doing kind of active listening or reflecting but it's um essential to kind of to go through the steps because it's so easy to stop at one of them so they start just with the intention of truly understanding what the other person has to say. That seems obvious, but so often when we're listening to people, we want to, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. So just, just to put that in people's heads that, that we're listening with the goal of understanding. And then the second step is reflect back what I heard the person say, try to do that as accurately as possible. Third step is ask for confirmation. Did I get that right? Or just write, just wait. And then the, the, the fourth step is to receive that confirmation. So any of those steps, you could, you know, potentially stop and do something else. And then when you are at the fourth step and you're receiving their confirmation, they might uh, say more. They probably will say more. They might correct what they might say. Actually, you didn't get that quite right. Or I want to clarify something. Or that reminds me, I want to say something else now. And so now you're, they call it looping because now you've looped it back to step one and you're listening to that with the goal of understanding and reflecting. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to keep, just keep the focus on that person until they have said all that they want to say, looping through the steps and that that will truly help them feel heard. Okay. Okay. So I'm glad I now have a technical term for something I've been doing, <laughs> which is lovely. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, which brings me then to narrative mediation. Narrative mediation can be used in so many different contexts. It's from uh, peace talks. It can be used in community, family. There's loads of different applications. This is just my understanding of it. Narrative mediation, talk us through that. Yeah, so this is the one I have the least experience with. I've never been trained in narrative mediation. I read the book by Winslade and Monk, um, the founders, and you know, an article, watched a video, I, I looked for whatever I could find on it. What they're starting with is the idea that we are all telling stories all the time. We're telling stories, we're hearing stories, we're, we're, we're picking up stories from our environment, from our childhood, from society, and that these stories are what can lead to more conflict or can lead to resolving the conflict. So they're focusing on trying to find out what are the stories we're telling ourselves and how can we change those stories to lead to a more harmonious interaction with the other person and with other people in society? So they also have a goal of be more than just about the dispute. There's some questions here. For example, if, if there's a gendered aspect uh, to this idea of trust, uh, would it take on a different shape if you were a different gender? You know, this is I was looking at this question. I was going, oh, yeah. So there's loads of different ways to apply this. I was studying um, uh, international peace treaties and we we're talking about culture and the way the different stories and symbolism, you know, where there's actually a lot of meaning behind the story or where does the story originate from? You know, and is that all, is that serving a purpose as is part of identity? There's many different facets to this. So I think it's it's fascinating. And there's applications to this for restorative practice uh, as well, because sometimes it's a community approach, isn't it? Um, to the narrative, like wh what is the story that others are telling about this individual or about this situation, you know, and what are the stories that we need to share? This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. I have to say this book is so informative and concise 
um, and you, you give us a brief overview at the end. So just as a as a mediator, then if I'm another mediator uh, listening in, you know, you've done all this study and, and how do you think you landed on the approach that suited you best? I mean, to some degree, it was trial and error. It actually, I in a way, sort of came full circle. When I started, I definitely had this feeling of I, I don't like the idea of people bullying each other. Um, like that was, I kind of came in with that. And when, but when I saw it at first, I felt like, I don't know what to do about it. I didn't feel like I was really given the tools in the trainings I had before to, to address it. So I felt like it was my job to stop it, but I didn't know how, and I wasn't sure what it was my right to do. So like if someone was somewhat willfully submitting, like one person's bullying, the other person is kind of like, I don't have a choice here. What is it? My role to tell you to do anything different, mm-hmm. um, but I don't like it. Right. So that was, I kind of felt disillusioned by having an, an experience like that, where I was seeing this happening in front of me and yeah, it was um, kind of traumatic. <laughs> it was, it was a marital, marital case. It was the wife actually, I felt like who was the stronger, more dominant party. Um, and maybe the, I don't know if this is a good time to share, but side note, there was so much pain going on for her that I was able to see when I spoke with her individually, because at one point I actually asked if I could speak to them individually, because I just wanted to check in. Was he okay? (laughs) Did he really want to be doing this? And when I went to speak to her, I just said, this is really hard, you know, and she just started crying and then talking about how hard this has been. And so I try to keep that in mind when I see people who are behaving that way, that there's a lot of pain going on and that's how they're coping with it. So, but in the moment, it's like, okay, even though we had that nice moment, I still felt like I was kind of at war with the two of them and that I wanted them to work with each other a certain way. And that wasn't how they were doing it. So that was my, that was my experience with facilitative. And then I learned, and I almost, I think, was going to get out of mediation at that point. I'm like, I don't know if this is for me. Yeah, you can relate. (laughs) Yeah. And then I I discovered understanding-based. And to me, that was a breath of fresh air because they were explicitly, directly, transparently saying, this is what we do. We help people have a conversation where both voices are in the room. All interests are being acknowledged and understood. And if you don't you know, if that's not something that you want to do, then maybe we're not the right fit. Um, and of course, they have a much you know better way of approaching it with like, you know, getting permission. Like, do you want to, you know, this is what I've observed, your dynamic. It looks like, you know, one person is getting angry and the other person's giving in. Would you like to change that? Um, so they approach it in a very, I think, you know, gentle, understanding, compassionate way. But ultimately, if the parties say, no, we don't want to change that, um, the understanding-based approach is all about proceeding by agreement. So if we're not on all on the same page, including the mediator, about where to go next, then we have to part ways. You know, it's respectful, but it's also, it's a lot of boundaries. Um, so that was like, oh, I do get to say this. Okay, I can, I can be honest about what, what's going on for me. And... Then when I was um, volunteering at a community center, I did a co-mediation with another person who was also new to the understanding-based approach. So we wanted to do it together. And we were, it's funny, it's like the universe decided to present me with almost the same exact case I was seeing before. Uh, it wasn't quite as extreme, but it was again, a divorce where the, the wife was the more dominant party. She would get angry and the husband would give in. And so, you know, the other mediator and I, we were new to it. So we were not doing understanding based, you know, the way that say Jack and Gary would have done it. Probably they might have, they would have had a much more finesse with it. Um, but we still ended up in the same place where they didn't see the the possibility of changing their dynamic. You know, because of course the wife felt justified in the anger that she had about, you know, if he didn't want to give her her way and he felt like he had no better choice. He was like, I am not going to put my kids through a court battle. So I have to give in. And so we ended up parting ways with them. And, and that, you know, I had a certain sort of feeling of, okay, well, at least I'm not in a battle 
with them anymore. At least I've said what I think is, you know, valuable in mediation and had my own boundary there. But what good did it do them? You know, so again, I was like, yeah, I don't know if mediation is for me. Um, but I hadn't given up on it yet. And I actually started writing the mediator's approach before I was trained in transformative. I had read The Promise of Mediation by Bork Bush and Joe Folger. And I was, I, there was a lot I loved about understanding base. And I was trying to figure out, I wonder if I could integrate them in some way. Like, is there, I, I felt like I still had hope for mediation. And um, it was a kind of exploring that. And my, the writing of that book was me trying to sort it out. You know, it started out as like just something that would be a blog post and then it turned into a book. But then when I was trained in transformative, it just, it, it synced up with my understanding of psychology in terms of who people really are at their core and what they really need. And, and it also just felt so freeing to me uh, because it's, it's about the idea that like, this is their, their lives, their decisions, and Nobody likes to see bullying, but actually probably the best way to help people not bully is to completely support them where they are because the bully themselves doesn't want to be a bully. I mean, that's what we're assuming is that if they feel supported, and I think if I had been, yeah, more supportive to that, either of those wives in those two cases, um, they might have chosen on their own to stop being so aggressive and the husband might have stood up for themselves. And it's also possible the understanding-based approach done well would have accomplished that too. I don't know that we were, you know, supporting them in the way that was ideal for that from, from that approach. But just having the explicit um, intention of the transformative approach of we are there to fully support them and we're not going to try in any way to push or pull them anywhere and just trust that they will get where they need to go when they need, when they can, you know, when it's right for them. It's like that just feels really freeing and really good about um, good for me in terms of, I never feel like I'm in a battle with them. I feel like I am support. I get to support them the way I want to support them. Like with just full trust that they can do it. And that's, that's the thing, isn't it? What is contributing to their behavior? What's contributing to this situation? And there's so many different factors going on. And and as I mentioned that I, I'm, I'm, Cognizant that there are are different listeners coming from different parts of the world here. And some people are listening in kind of going well, the American approach or the North Carolina state law would be very different to local law or national law, wherever people are listening to. And I think I think there there are those important factors as well to consider, like in some places, evaluative may may never be considered as approach to mediation uh, there. And I think this has been so educational for people to know what's out there, isn't it? Know what your options are. Yeah, I would like to think so. Yeah, you've been so kind with your time. And and this is the thing I, I often say to people is, you have a framework or you have an approach that's given to you. And sometimes the map is not the territory. Like when you are in the situation, you can give me the framework and you go by step by step. But sometimes you have to to listen to that. Like, what what do you think is being presented here? Am I put my own bias here? Am I being impartial? Am I sticking up for one person or the other? Because, you know, you know, I can identify someone in my life like that. There are so many different factors, aren't there, that we kind of. We really have to be so clear and we have to be fully present as mediators to go, okay, I'm choosing this approach and here's why, and here's what's best for the people in front of me. Right, right. I love that point you made about bias because, um, you know, they were, it was always just my interpretation of what was going on. My, you know, it really seemed to me like there was bullying happening but who knows how much I was being triggered by one of them reminded me of someone else in my life. And that I then by trying to fix it, ended up making it worse. Yeah. And here's, here's the thing then is about our personality. You know, are we playing into the, the drama triangle, you know, Cartman's drama triangle, are we the fixer, Hmm. you know, or the rescuer, you know, or the savior, or, you know, do we go to that winner's pyramid 
where you know we're actually saying actually these people they're empowered they know what's best for themselves you know and that's the whole thing about the mediator's approach is you're after mentioned co-mediator then uh, and that's something we hadn't discussed as well that's an approach as well isn't it and and it's so fascinating as an approach. So is it okay if we talk about your your experience with co-mediation? Because I'm sure a lot of people are are fascinated by that. I think choosing a partner for a, as co-mediator, I think there's a lot of trust. You, you have to have established with that other person. You, you really have to know their style, you know. So I think before you go into your first your mediation together, co-mediation, you really have to know each other and know each other's approach and check what your approach is and how are you going to organize the logistics. There's so many different aspects to co-mediation, isn't it? Instead of going solo. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience? Yeah. Well, the case I had just been talking about, um, I can't remember like exactly how we met. We weren't really good friends, but we knew each other had mutual respect and knew that we both were interested in the same and understanding based, but um, we did, you know, part of, I think what added to the conflict in the room was that she and I were looking at things differently at first. So perhaps because of that earlier case, I, I saw with the, you know, really aggressive dominant wife, I was very attuned to when the parties, you know, came in and said, Oh yeah, we decided we're going to basically go with the wife's, choice on something that I knew they were very much at odds about before. Um, you know, a red, a red flag, at least I was like, well, I wanted to know why, you know, and then found out that, well, she had gotten so angry that she wouldn't, you know, talk to them on the way back home. And so he basically said, okay, fine, you can have your way. And so to me, that was like, oh, that, that's a red flag. But the other mediator, the co-mediator didn't seem to think it was much of a problem. And so at the beginning, you know, I was kind of pulling one direction of, I think we should, you know, address this dynamic a little bit more. And she was kind of pulling the other direction of they get to make their own choices. Um, And so it's kind of ironic that I'm now at the place of like, oh yeah, they get to make all their own choices. Um, But I do think there's a danger in us making some choices, but then letting them make other choices where, um, you know, they now they're, they're relying on us, but then we just kind of throw up our arms and say, oh, well, their choice. Um, you know, I feel like we have to be kind of consistent in what we're doing. So, so she and I had a dynamic. We would meet after like every session, we would go to have lunch. We would, you know, we spent so many, this is a volunteer case. We spent so many hours talking about what was going on with them. And as the sessions are progressing, the dynamic just continued and seemed to get worse and worse. So the um, you know, every decision that needed to be made, it would be the wife gets angry if the husband doesn't do what she wants, and then he gives in. So by the end, she was on the same page. Like, yeah, this isn't why we're we're here. <laughs> why do they even need us? You know, they could just let, let her write it up and he'll just sign it, right? So, um, so we ended up on the same page, but I don't know how much we were just fueling the conflict by the two of us in subtle ways, being on different pages. In the mediation. So fascinating, the different dynamics at play and even yourselves within conflicting approaches or conflicting interests for the parties, even though your both intentions were the same, there might be a different, slight difference in intention in the approaches. Fascinating. May I ask you, um, where you are in North Carolina, is it a prerequisite to do in order to do family mediation, do you have to be certified as a family mediator? So in Ireland, you you have you have to have your foundation uh, certificate to be a mediator, and then you have to do the extra training then as well to be a family mediator. Is there is there anything like that set in legislation? No, if you want to do it through the court system or be recommended by the courts, then you need to go through a certain process and be certified by them or approved by them in some fashion. But if you're doing it on your own, I'm pretty sure you're welcome to do it how you like. But you know, I haven't read. (laughs) Maybe I should go take a look and see if I'm breaking any laws because I'm not, you know, I'm not familiar with exactly what is said about that. Yeah, I I suppose we're fortunate in Ireland that we have it written into legislation. So, you know, when it comes to in Europe, there's not many countries uh, with, with, mediations uh, uh, as part of their legislation. 
And again, you uh, can only mediate the level of your competence. So if you if you if you haven't trained in family mediation, then you're obviously, um, I suppose, you're liable then to any uh, court action or anything like that. Uh, I have to say it is it's only um, in in Ireland the legislation has only been a couple of years, so there hasn't been anything uh, tested uh, in court as of yet. So uh, again, until that arises, then I'm sure um we'll get more clarity so so yeah so that's what i recommend to everybody knows whatever organization you're you're uh accredited to that you follow their code of ethics and local law so as part of the podcast i just want to put that health warning out there tara this has been such a, a pleasure and um, we are going to chat again because we are going to talk about your book, which you've recently published, Self-Determination in Mediation, The Art of, and Science of Mirrors and Lights. What a wonderful uh, title. So if people people were to find out more about you or to contact you, how might they do so? My website is tarawestmediation.com. So they could go there and then my contact information, my email address and phone number are there. I'm also on LinkedIn. And I love to contact or connect with people on LinkedIn. So feel free to find me there and they can see, yeah, my books are both listed on my website too. They're on the website. And where are they available then? If I was listening in, would I go straight to your website or where are the other places I could find it? Yeah. If you go to my website, that just links to Amazon, but they're available Barnes and Noble and, you know, all over the place. Roman and Littlefield who published self-determination, you can buy it, buy it through them. Sometimes they have discount codes. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really looking forward to reading your your book, Self-Determination uh, in Mediation, The Art and Science of Mirrors and Lights. And also this book that we have just reviewed, The Mediator's Approach, Five and a Half Paths to Conflict by the author Tara West. Tara West, thank you so much for joining the Workplace Podcast. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.